Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Rhythms, a series exploring the essence of Christian life, asking, who am I becoming? It's about personal formation, shaping our lives with Christian values, moving beyond the mere thoughts about God to practical habits and disciplines that mirror Jesus. These are our Rhythms. We pray this message is a blessing. The first reading today is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The second reading is also in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Awesome. Thank you, Lara. How are we doing, friends? Good. What a, what a time. It's 2024. If I've not had the joy of meeting you, my name's Alex. Feel free to call me Al, and I serve as the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. I remember a few years ago, I was reading a, uh, a series of essays by a writer named Annie Dillard, and she's an essayist, she's a novelist, and she's quite profound in what she recounts, and this collection of essays is sort of like a ragtag bunch of memoirs. And in there, the book is called On Writing, and she's recounting and reflecting on the process and the formation of writing. And in there, she had this fascinating observation. I'll read you the words, and I just want to let you sit with them for a moment. She said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And in that one little phrase, that pregnant, powerful, loaded phrase, she was hinting at something which I think we often forget in the West. If I was to ask you, what's the most important thing about you? I think what we do in the West is we rally the big things in our lives. So we mention a big decision that we've got coming up and whether we are going to choose to marry that person or not marry that person, enroll in that university degree or not enroll in that university degree. And we say, therefore, that I'm a spouse or I'm a uni student. And we start to define ourselves in terms of the big things of life. 
or we start to define ourselves in terms of the experiences that we have in life. And so really quickly, it's like I'm going to finish high school, I'm going to go and travel, and therefore I'm going to be a traveler. Or in other words, I'm just going to be winning at life because that's what we esteem in our Aussie modern culture. Really quickly, really easily, we let the big things in our life be the way by which we narrate who we think we are. But here's what Annie Dillard reckons. It's not the big things. It's not the big decisions. It's not even the big moments. It's the small, the mundane, the everyday, the way you wake up, the way you go to bed, the way you hold conversation with your spouse, the way you wish you held conversation with your spouse, your rhythms. And we're kicking off this year, just like we do every single year, by asking this question, what are your rhythms this year? Because we fundamentally believe that who we are becoming is way more important than what we do, the accolades we achieve, the things that we do in life, the resume we accumulate. And who we're becoming is the most important thing about us. And what forms who we're becoming is not just the ideas we've got about God, but the rhythms we have and the calendars we keep and the habits we entertain and the disciplines we employ as we seek to become more like Jesus. Because I'll say it really straight, and this is my first two minutes just to open us here. Christianity is a worldview to believe. It's true and it's good. I really believe that. But it's also a way of life in which to apprentice, because of which it changes you not just with your mind, not just with your heart, but with your hands, with every facet of your being. In other words, if you were to ask God, what part of me can I reserve from transformation because of your love? He would say, nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And the point of rhythms is to take this ethereal idea of becoming like Jesus and translate it into calendar items. And I'm not kidding. That's literally what this exists for, because here's what happens. We ask, well, what does it mean to become like Jesus? And the pastor will say, well, it means discipleship. Well, what does discipleship mean? Well, it means following Jesus. Well, what does following Jesus mean? And we stay up in this nebulous, ethereal cloudland, and all the while, all the incredible writers from church history are talking to us and screaming at us in the face saying, have you heard of spiritual disciplines? Have you thought about your regular rhythms of life and how they, whether you know it or not, are forming you or deforming you? And you can recruit that, your calendar, for the glory of God as you become like Jesus, partnering with the Spirit along the way. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to look at one particular discipline today. It's the discipline of secrecy. So I'll pray just to let you sit on that while I pray. Why don't you bow your heads? Father, thank you that you're here. And that, Father, this is a public setting, but you've got something to do personally to each of us, maybe even privately to each of us this afternoon. I've prepared a message, Lord, but, Father, it's you who is going to preach. And so we just rend our hearts before you and say, come have your way. We want to sit under your word, be formed by your authority, and walk out different from how we came in, perhaps with a commitment we might make to become more like your son, not because we're able and amazing, but because your spirit is at work and we just get to respond. So come, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. The discipline of secrecy. A definition for the discipline of secrecy would be this. The discipline of secrecy is intentionally hiding your devotion and deeds to please only your Father in heaven. Sounds a bit strange. 
I actually think there's no more powerful practice for the modern disciple of Jesus than the discipline of secrecy. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word secrecy. I will unpack it, I promise. I see some blank stares. Go with me, friends. What comes to my mind is just the hype we experience when we hear the word secret. Uh, Recently, I've been getting these adverts on Facebook, and I've revealed my algorithm too much here at New Life Brisbane, but here we are again. And has anyone else got these adverts? It'll say something, it'll be a picture of a pristine white beach, turquoise blue, clear water, and then it'll say, Northern New South Wales, best kept the new beach to rival Byron Bay. And I'm like, I'm clicking that thing, why? Because when I hear the word secret, I'm like, that provokes hype, exclusivity, privilege. If I click this and find out about this beach, Kath and I are having the best Sabbath ever. Let's go. And I think what's offered to us in the discipline of secrecy should evoke a similar feeling. What do I mean? privilege. This sense that I get something with God the Father. That's available to me. And my hope as we unpack three little points here this afternoon is that we walk through this the whole way feeling, oh my goodness, what an absolute privilege it is for me to rend my deeds and my devotion. Better yet, my whole life in service to God, who is my primary audience. What a privilege. Wouldn't that evoke hype and excitement? We are in. It's the best clickbait. So I want to see three things this afternoon. I want to see the danger of public piety. I want to see the reward of secret devotion. And if there's time, I want us to look at the habits of a hidden life. And if there's not time, we will send out some kind of material So make sure you subscribe to our our newsletter. So number one, number one, the danger of public piety. Uh, The context of the passage that Lara read is Jesus teaching on the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And that sermon is doing something very particular in Matthew's gospel. You open the Bible, 66 books, you turn to the New Testament, 27 And you find in the first four books of the New Testament biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's their claim. Their claim is on the one hand to recount history faithfully. But on the other hand, because they are real people with real histories who had a real encounter with the real Jesus, they've got an agenda. And that agenda is to weave their story of encounter and their theological formation in the story of the Jews into the person and way of Jesus. And what Matthew does in his gospel is quite profound, actually. The first four chapters, he basically presents this argument that the open question of the Old Testament has been answered in Jesus. Where Abraham failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Moses was a bit broken, Jesus wasn't. Where David was meant to be the king in whom we put our trust and wouldn't be dissatisfied, Jesus made it through. So by the end of chapter 4, you've got Jesus going out into the wilderness through the Jordan. Sound familiar? It's called the story of the Old Testament. God's people woven through the Exodus story. In the Jordan, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And just after he launches his public ministry with all the authority, all the power of the Spirit of God in his life, he gets on a mountainside. The disciples gather and he starts teaching. And he brings some of the hardest teaching ever. The start of his public ministry. First sermon to the world. I don't know if you know this. I was reflecting on this recently, but if you're 
If you win the presidential race, and there's one coming up in America this year, if you win the presidential race, your first speech in office is incredibly important. In your first speech in office, you remind the people the policies you promised to try and legislate and the actions that you wanted your government to take. And it's incredibly rallying and rousing. And the point of it is to say, here's where we're going. Here's what we're about. Here's what's going to happen. You can play your part. As John F. Kennedy, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That came after his speech. It's like, here is where we're going. Join this call. In Australia, I think when we win an election, they just crack a beer or something. Different. That joke landed differently in New Life Morton this morning. <laughs> just going to label that for us helpfully. In the UK, interestingly, when we were living there, I discovered that a lot of parties put out what they call a manifesto. Has anyone heard that term before? And the point of a manifesto is to say, we as a political party want to achieve these things, and here's our ideologies and our ideals. Here's what Jesus is doing in his first sermon, first speech, launch of his public ministry. Disciples gathered around him. And in this speech, he says, there are two ways to live. You can be publicly pious and perform your way for a claim, or you can cultivate a hidden life with God and subject everything you do, deeds and devotion, to that way. And in this, he takes aim at what I'm going to call the trinity of Jewish piety in Hebrew culture, the way that they would signal virtue in that religious culture. Prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. So if you look with me at verses 1 to 2, verse 5 and verse 16, flick with me through your Bibles. It'll be on the screen, but having it in your hands lets you know that I'm not a liar. It says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. In verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Now what Jesus does here is he employs two terms I want to zoom in on because it's going to raise the stakes of the warning he's giving us. And the number one term he uses is hypocrite. Hypocrite. Translate the Greek word hypocrite which is a plural form of a particular verb. No one asked me. There it is. And it's roughly translated play actors. So in Greco-Roman culture, people of pedigree, esteem, and acclaim would often have Hippocrati come and play theatre before them. And part of that would be, therefore, to put on a mask, to step into the arena, and to entertain. Or in other words, I think entertainment's really just a cheap version of approval, to get the approval of those watching the show. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to take your piety. Now, for the Jews, it was prayer, fasting, and righteousness slash almsgiving, which is like giving to the poor. Could be something different for us. And we'll get there. But here's what Jesus is saying. To use your deeds and devotion in order to be admired is to become a play actor of life. That's what he's saying. Now, play actors, they get their reward. Jesus, in fact, says this three times. You'll see it repeated. Truly, I tell you, they will receive their reward in full. I was meditating on this this week going, 
is that like God smiting them, you know? Like what's going to happen? What's Jesus predicting here? The word Jesus uses when he talks about them getting their, wor- their reward in full, it's actually an accounting term. And most of the times it comes up in the New Testament, it's translated wages. That in other words, what Jesus is saying is, that there will be an accounting that happens if you live your life as an exercise in play acting for people's approval. There will be an accounting that happens. Like it'll just happen. Jesus is just talking about reality here, flesh and blood, social, personal, horizontal reality. It's just, it's going to happen. And what are those wages? Those wages are, I think personally, a distorted identity, and destroyed relationships. Think about it. Um, the way, if, if you live your life as an exercise in performing to be admired, whether religiously or socially or just personally, whatever it is, uh, then the way you think about who you are is purely through the lens of what other people think about you. Do you not? I was reflecting just this week on the way by which different cultures form identity and, uh, and it's changed a lot over the years and we find ourselves in a particularly prickly moment. Um, in what you might call pre-modern cultures, your identity was determined by the community of which you are a part. Jesus was in a pre-modern culture. His dad was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. In modern cultures, we elevated the mind and reason over heart and community. And what became the marching orders for identity formation wasn't the community of which I was a part, but actually what I thought for myself. And there was a famous argument put forward by a French philosopher, doesn't matter, but the words he used are on the screen behind me. It went from my community says, therefore I am, and now to I think, therefore I am. I'm an individual, I'm gonna embrace it. And we moved to a postmodern culture and it's a moment within which actually what dictates who I think I am is, is my feelings. Now, there's some nuance I could add to that, but it's blatantly basically true in some sense, and at least in the everyday street level of things. And, but a lot of sociologists are saying we now live in a meta-modernity moment. And I think in a meta-modern moment, here's what sort of contributes to our sense of self, our identity formation, the answer to the question, who am I? How do I think about myself? What am I? And I'd say in this culture, we say things like, well, I broadcast, therefore I am. In 2020, James Fox, he's a, actually don't know what he does, but he started a a BBC short doco series. I recommend it to you. It's called The Age of the Image. And in The Age of the Image, James Fox, in like brilliant British candor, just walks through all the ways in which, and there's a photo of him behind me on the screen. Strapping young lad. He, um, He walks through all the ways in which images we see every single day battering at us. We open our phone, there's images there. We turn on the TV, there's images there. We walk down the street, there's billboards, there's images there. We don't have any screens in front of us, but somehow there still seems to be images there. And he says, all the excess of image, the intoxication of images in our world aren't just now things we look at, but they've become ways by which we look at ourselves. And what we start doing when we answer the question of who I am, which is the hardest question to ask. If we started to answer that question by thinking, well, what do other people think of me? And so we say things like, well, so long as I can project this image through my social media, 
or project this image through the clothing I wear. But here's what happens. Now, that was a long rabbit trail to get to really this basic, simple point. We end up interpreting ourselves through the images we project, and here's the bottom line, we never know who we truly are. If I was to ask you right now, do you know who you are? How do you answer that? And the risk of this sort of muscle memory that was modelled in the Pharisees and can make its way into our own life is to say, I interpret who I am through the opinion of the crowd. And that completely distorts your identity. You never know who you truly are. Second, it destroys relationship. On a social level, people can give me their approval, but I can't expect their delight. I might be liked, but I'll never be loved. Why? Because if you view people as the means by which you get admiration, accolade, and acclaim, then they're either an object to you receiving that, or they're a utility for you to achieve that. And all of a sudden, the community that you want to experience love from, you demote and you just say, hey, I just want you to like me, just accept me, just like, like me, accept me and approve of me and, and admire me for me performing in whatever sort of context I find myself. That's the social level. And, and the downside, therefore, is you never experience true love. You might be liked or admired for the exercise of piety or whatever virtue you signal, but you will not be loved. Why? Because you're not known. Who are you? But on the personal level, here's what I want to say. Jesus doesn't critique their piety per se. He critiques their audience. Here's the bottom line. If your Christianity and your life becomes an exercise in achieving people's admiration, you'll never know who you truly are. You'll struggle to know real relationship and you will miss out on the thing for which your soul most craves, which is the second point the reward of secret devotion. A lot of people will tell me, just this side note, that the Bible's outdated and doesn't speak to our modern day, but here's Jesus, just with two Greek words, Hippocrati and misthon, wages, helping us see that if we live a particular way, our account's going to be settled, not because God's coming in with a stick, but just because of the way reality is and what God set up. And so I find that incredibly profound and just helpful, just to think through as we start our year Bible reading this year, what might it say to us? How might it speak to us? Little hiatus, the reward of secret devotion. Here, Jesus is going to add a new lens to that same piety. He's not going to do away with the righteousness, the devotion, the deeds. He's going to put a new layer, a new grounding, a new lens over top, new grounding underneath. And in asking us to practice secrecy, here's what I want you to hear. He's not asking us to to live a private life. There's nothing private about Christianity. He's asking God, asking us to make God our primary audience. And there's a huge difference. Huge, huge difference. So come with me to verse 3. It says this, and we'll go to 6 and 17 after that. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. When you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you fast, verse 17, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So track with me on this. This whole time with Jesus' use of the word hypocrite, hypocrite, play actor, close call. The image that's in his mind is of a theater, a stage. Think about it. 
And as he goes through this dialogue, this image in the back of his mind, he is therefore what the religious elite think. The religious elite think that to be seen means putting on the religious play-acting mask and performing. And Jesus' point for the first part of the sermon that we looked at is that works. You will get paid for that. And here's what payment looks like. Distorted identity, destroyed relationships, never knowing the intimacy that God the Father has for you as you are. So the Pharisees say like this, take your piety, make it visible, and you will be admired by the crowd you can see. It's a theatre. Here's Jesus' narrative. Take your piety, your deeds, your devotion. And many of us have been Christians for a long time. You know what they are. Think of them. It could be prayer. It could be fasting. It could be righteousness, justice, whatever it is. Take your piety, Jesus says. Make it invisible. And you will delight the one you can't see. Do you see that? Let me read that again. The Pharisees say, take your piety, make it visible, and you will be admired by the crowds you can see. And Jesus says, take your piety, make it invisible, and you will delight the one you can't see. And it's a completely different way to live life. And the point of Jesus taking the theatre and the accounting term is to boil it all down to one simple cost-benefit analysis. Don't you like that? I know I do. Our sense of stability in life is directly correlated with our sense of being affirmed. Psychologists will say that, and I think a decent pastor will say that. The sense that I know who I am, I'm loved as I am, I'm not there yet, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I just made that up. But here's the thing. The power of the affirmation we seek is tied to the importance of the person whose opinion we, ma- we think matters the most. For example, I walk down the street, I know who I am, but I run the risk of trying to sort of succeed at getting people's admiration in life. Bit of a people pleaser, to be honest. I don't care what the barista who makes my coffee thinks. Now, I used to work in coffee, so that's not entirely true. I want them to know that I know a thing or two, but other than that, I'm okay. But you know whose opinion really does matter to me? What my father thinks of me. I would promote my father's opinion of me in its level of importance and ability to stabilize my identity and sense of self over my barista. Or likewise, being a city center church, I often walk past people in the street and on my worst days, I just headphones in and walking through, I'm just like you. And uh, I don't care necessarily what people that I walk past on the street think of me. I'm working on it. But you know whose opinion really does matter to me? My wife. What does she know of me? What has she experienced of me? What can she affirm in me? It's wonderful for the barista to say, oh, you know how macadamia milk reacts to this level of steam temperature. It's different when my wife says, you've been working really hard at that. And I see change. That's beautiful. The level of someone's importance in your life will determine what their affirmation means for you. And here's the cost-benefit analysis, what Jesus is talking about. The creator of the universe wants to lavish his affirmation on you. The creator of the universe wants to lavish his affirmation on you. 
To practice secrecy is to make God your primary audience, to take off the mask of the play acting of life, whether personally, socially, or religiously, taking your deeds, your devotion, your piety into the public performance PR sector and to hand it over, to make God your primary audience and to take off the mask and discover that the God who could have rejected you, the God of the universe who created you, the God in Jesus who redeemed you actually loves you. That's the practice of secrecy. That's what it offers. So instead of a distorted identity, you get a stabilized identity. Why? Because you've got a whole new center of gravity. I know who I am. I know who I'm not. By the grace of God, I'm becoming what God intends me to be. Whole new center from which to live life. It completely stabilizes your identity. That's the new wage that Jesus gives us reward for in this practice. But also, instead of a destroyed relationship, we get renewed relationships. Why? Because people aren't sort of a means by which for me to feel good about myself for performing with my piety in my religious context or socially and keeping up with the Joneses. No, people are people. And I get to know them and be known by them. And they're a bit quirky, but I see that God's made them that way, so it's not just okay. I love it. And all of a sudden, you get curiosity back in your life and your relationships get better. Not necessarily in this prosperity gospel kind of way, but just in this sense that if you've got a stable identity because you know what the Father affirms in you and you've got this sense of self and stability, you can actually navigate relationships for their own success. Last point I'll make, though, is this is the primary reward. You get him. Paul would say in Philippians, I consider everything rubbish if not for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. A stable identity is actually a unique gift from the Christian worldview in a secular culture. What a joy. Healthier relationships, given impetus in the Christian framework for how we should relate to people as image bearers of God, what a joy. Rubbish compared to knowing him. Therefore, not not good, but in comparison. George Herbert, who's a um, pastor poet, I could only dream. British guy, could only dream. He... um was meditating on Colossians 3. He put it like this. My words and thoughts do both express this notion. Why don't you close your eyes as you listen to this? My words and thoughts do both express this notion that life hath with the sun a double motion. The first is straight and our, and our diurnal friend, the other hid and doth obliquely bend. One life is wrapped in flesh and tends to earth. The other winds toward him whose happy birth taught me to live here so that still one eye should aim and shoot at that which is on high, quitting with daily labor all my eternal pleasure to gain at harvest an eternal treasure. Here's the invitation of Jesus. You get him. You get him now. You get him forever. And the practice of secrecy in devotion and deed won't make that true. It'll apply that truth in the depths of your heart. If you go to the next slide, thanks, Ashton, you'll see just poetically, I just got to throw this in there. That diagonal of those terms perfectly summarizes Paul's words in Colossians 3. You were buried and your life is hid in Christ, with Christ in God. Takeaway point, to practice secrecy, 
to use our deeds and our devotion not as a means by which to get public and crowd approval, but just to minister back to God. It's not an exercise in performing or meriting God's love. It's an exercise in just responding to the fact that we were buried as Christians. We died with Christ to our sin, not because we were amazing, because he did it all. And now as we're hidden in him, enclaved in him, protected, sheltered in him, we work out what he's worked in, our salvation, as we grow in our experience of his approval and affirmation. I want to talk about the habits of a hidden life and let me whisk through a few things quickly. I'll go a few minutes over here because I think it's too important. Um, but as I do, I just want to welcome the band to come and, come and join me and maybe some keys can tell us how to feel. Um, I stole that joke. That's not mine. But um, how do we do this? Like what's the habits of a hidden life? I think number one, it's a new lens with which to look at all the service we do. That's got to be true. And the kind of person that comes to my mind when I think of this is the mum who's up at 1 a.m. after being up half an hour before settling their kid. And it's 1 a.m. again, and they're crying and they're screaming. And you're just thinking to yourself, why won't they go back to sleep? And secondly, where's my husband? And um, if it's true that our deeds and our devotion can be ministry back to God. What does that mean for you at 1am in the morning, comforting your child? It means the father sees and he's looking at it and it's delighting him. You could serve on the host team on Sundays at church, beautiful, awesome, exciting, I bless our host team, I really honour them. No one sees what a mother does at 1am in the morning. You probably WhatsApp your girlfriends about it. I get it. It's good, helpful, good for the soul. But goodness me, what is unseen by so many people, I just want to say to the mothers in the room, God sees that. Or maybe you're a bit more mature and, uh, and you're a caregiver for someone who's got chronic pain or is unable, disadvantaged, unable to care for themselves. That is a secret ministry you've got to them and to God. It's not meaningless. It's not an add-on to this thing we call Christianity over here. That is you apprenticing to Jesus Christ rhythmically. And God looks at that and I can confidently say, He delights. How would that lens change your care? A new lens, two hidden deeds. Let me just give you a real quick machine gun fire through. Find ways to be secretly sacrificial, generous, and serving. Ask God to show you areas where you tend to need acknowledgement. I resonate with that one. Honor confidentiality. Just think about that. Fast from social media. In other words, escape the age of the image. You're welcome. Last one, secret devotion. Jesus frequently escaped to be with God. Before he chose his disciples, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Before he faced the cross, the great heavenly eternal exchange, he went on the outside of the garden to pray. And what he modeled for us is this sense in which you might define a good life like this. A good life 
seems to have a rhythm of sneaking away to be with God. Does anyone get that impression when they look at the life of Jesus? A good life seems to have this rhythm of sneaking away to be with God, to get with Him, to be with Him, just to be with Him, like no other agenda, just me and you, Father, just to be with you, be in your presence. And, and so here's what I want to say, cultivate what some writers have called the secret place. And the secret place can be made up of you just being there, sitting in silence and solitude. We've got a whole host of resources for that. It could look like prayer. It could look like prayer walking. It could look like opening your scriptures and stuttering, studying, stuttering, that works too, studying vigorously or opening the scriptures and just meditating on them in the way that Pastor Dylan helped us unfold last week. What would it look like just to get away with God? Cultivate the secret place. For some people, it's a certain place. For me, I'm a pagan. Go up the mountain, does something to my heart, don't care. What is it for you? But for others who don't have a place or maybe your responsibilities are, um, what's the word? Too real at the moment. Family, kids, whatever, whatever it is, you're not going to have a place. I just want to encourage you with the story of Susanna Wesley as I finish here and land the plane. Um, Susanna Wesley, she's a mother of 10. I'll say that again, she had 10 kids. But she made a commitment early in her life to read the Bible. She's like, God, I'm going to get with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to let your word form me and shape me. I'm going to dig into its depths. I'm going to sit under the authority of it. I want to be a new person because of what I discover in your word. Which means she had to read it. But then she had 10 kids. What do you do with 10 kids? So she had this rule. And the rule was whenever mummy is sitting on a chair with her apron over her head, She's in the secret place. She's with God. Ten kids. She grab her seat. Apron on her head. Scriptures here. That doesn't work mechanically. She probably had a different apron. What's your word saying to me today, God? I'm here with you, Jesus. Talk to me. Shape me. Now, some people would say neglect. I beg to differ. Charles Wesley became one of the greatest hymn writers, her son, that ever faced the planet. And her son, John Wesley, became the great horseback preacher that led to one of the great awakenings in the history of the Christian world. Whatever your stage of life, whatever the burden of your responsibility, whether you're a uni student who thinks they have less time than they do, that wasn't a shot, I just, it's real. Whether you're a mum and you've got one kid, whether you just work a nine to five job and it's a grind, here's what I want to say as we start our year. You've got to get away with God. For some of you, if you want to survive this year, you've got to get away with God. For others of you, if you want to thrive this year, you've got to get away with God. God is not content to be on the outside of your audience. He wants to be the primary thing in your life. You've got to get away with Him. It might be a place. could be a practice. But what would it look like to start this year going, 
I'm going to rhythmically commit to getting away with God, to meeting with Him, cultivating intimacy with Him, and then along the way, fueling that with the discipline of secrecy, taking my deeds and my devotion, my piety, my acts, my heart, and employing them with Him as the primary audience. We'd be more like Jesus. I'm going to respond now, and I'm going to lead us in prayer after the first song, but um, the way I want to do this is just to create space. So we're going to sing I Surrender, and the start of the song just begins with the lyrics, Here I am, down on my knees again, desperate and hungry for you. And I think the risk of talking about rhythms and disciplines is that we treat them as an end in themselves, as opposed to a conduit through which we let our hearts run bare before God. And so I just want to create space where we just say to God in the intimacy of this moment, actually, God, I want to get away with you this year. And that starts right now. And so what we're going to do is the band's going to start singing. We're going to start worshipping. We've got a bit of extra time. That's fine. Because I, I said so. <laughs> like, not because the clock's different. Um, and uh, as the ba- band begins to lead us in worship, just remain seated or, or feel free to get on your knees if you'd like to. And just have that conversation with God. We're in a public space, but it'll be a secret act. And just when you're ready, um, just just stand where you are and just sing. And we'll respond in worship in that way. Uh, after the first song, the prayer team will be down the front so you can receive prayer. In fact, I'm not going to jump up after the first song. We're just going to continue straight through. And um, so just stand when you're ready. But I just want to create space. Have that conversation with God now, like right now. I want to get away with you. So here's our space. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.